Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider Podcast. Well, as you've all no doubt gathered, we find ourselves living in some strange and interesting times at the moment, unlike anything that the world has seen today. And as part of that, uh, we need to be able to effectively manage communications with both customers and clients. To help us deal with that, we have Tony Jakes, who is the Managing Director of Issues Outcomes. Uh, Tony produces a regular email newsletter, amongst other things, and helps organisations I suppose, navigate their way through these troubling times with the least reputational damage possible. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Good to be with you. Now, is there anything I screwed up in that intro that you want to correct? No, fine. <laughs> Good. We, so well, you, you did say something which I'm going to come back to. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. So, Tony, we are... We find ourselves in very interesting times at the moment, and I think a lot of companies are rushing to put out responses to the coronavirus, amongst other things, and all sorts of bits and pieces, but it's become evident looking a lot of the communications that are coming out that not everyone really understands what it is that they should be doing right now, which I guess brings me to my first question around, you know, when you're dealing with a crisis of this nature, or any nature, really... What are the top sort of, where do you start? What are the top couple of things that organisations need to really get a, a handle on early? I think the very first thing is to say, who are my stakeholders? Who I, who do I need to be talking to? Now, in your introduction, you said talking to customers and clients, which are very, very important. But my experience is that in a real crisis, the group who most often get overlooked are your own employees. Yeah. So it's a it's a problem that we say we're going to have this continuity for our supply. We're going to do this for our clients, and we forget our own employees who are who are worrying about their jobs, worried about their health, worried about what the company's saying, worrying if they're going to continue to be employed. And as I said, it's it's very very common. I'm not criticising people, but it's very very common for employees to be left out a bit when people are thinking about. Who do we need to communicate to? So my advice would be, yes, think about your clients and your customers, but don't forget your staff because they are incredibly important to the success of your crisis communications, especially, especially John, client-facing staff. Yeah. You do not want you do not want a situation where a client rings up, speaks to one of your staff, and they say, "Oh, the boss said such and such, but I I think he's totally wrong." That is that is absolutely. Um, not what you want to happen. So you need to be talking to your staff, not only about, not only about consistency of message, but also about them personally. How do they feel? How are they, how are they, when I say how do they feel, I mean literally that. Um, are they feeling healthy? How about their wife and kids? Have they got any concerns? What can we do to help you? Yep. These are the sorts of things which might not come into your category of crisis communication, but to me they're very, very important in communication during the crisis, which is slightly different, I guess. Yeah, and I guess it's really important too that the staff are well informed and aware of what to say if clients do ask questions because, as you pointed out before, the clients are most often or the, the, the your staff are most often the client-facing force within the organisation and if in a crisis they're standing there going, oh, 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 no idea. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's, an old, there's an old cliche that you, your staff are your ambassadors and yeah. even though sometimes that you say, no, really, in actual fact, it's quite true. You cannot have a situation where your staff are saying, I don't know, or boss doesn't sell me anything, or they treat me like a mushroom, or 
whatever it happens to be. So not only have you got to have good messages, but the staff have to know. So my advice always is make sure that whatever you say is advised to your staff. I went to my local travel agent um, just a few days ago to cancel a trip to Europe, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. And the person in that company, the person in the travel agency said to me, oh, yes, my boss has been on TV this morning announcing we're going to shut down branches. And only after he'd been on TV did he bother to tell the staff. Yeah. That, that's what the person just said to me. And you think to yourself, I wonder how many of those people were saying that to customers like me all over the country. Yeah. And also, I suppose it's important to have a message, give them the message and say, this is the only message. This is the only thing that you will be telling customers. Absolutely, yes. You don't want to sound too prescriptive, but you do want to say, hey, let's all have the same voice here. Let's all say the same things. Yeah. Uh, and that's really, that's really very, very important in, yeah. in a crisis. And there's an old adage in the media circles that sort of says, you know, uh, information abhors a vacuum. In other words, you know, if we don't give you information, then the journalists will just tend to make it up. Um, and I imagine staff are pretty much exactly the same. If you're not feeding them regular information to keep them informed on what's going on, then in the absence of fact, they'll just make it up. Absolutely. And and also, of course, the other thing that happened in a crisis is that you often don't know all the facts. One of the things I've seen in the last few uh, last week or so has been people saying, you know, we don't know what to say because we haven't got sufficient information. The reality is that when you're in a crisis, you typically don't have all the facts. That's the very nature of a crisis. A crisis is if you had all the right answers and knew what to do, it wouldn't be a crisis. Yeah. So in crises, by their very nature, you sometimes have to make decisions with without the full facts. And some organizations don't understand that. They don't like to say, I don't know. And so they make stuff up. And that's that leads to the sort of situation we've seen in the last week or so where there have been apparently contradictory statements. Sometimes they were contradictory, sometimes there were different interpretations, but the media are looking for looking for contradictions and that's a big problem. So whatever you do, you need to make sure your message is absolutely consistent and if you don't know something, you need to say, at the moment, I, I don't know that. Yeah, because I guess it's it's often the case that especially leaders feel like it's not okay to say, I don't know but you're saying it absolutely is, and people need to understand that if you don't know, you'll find out and get back to them. Yeah, absolutely. The trouble is that many many executives, especially in large organisations, have very, what my old dad used to call a well-matured ego, mm. and uh, they, they like to think that it's a sign of weakness if they say, I don't know, and of course it's not, especially in these really, really difficult times. And I, I personally think that most journalists, or decent journalists anyway, respect when you say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. Uh, and, they, and they should do that. Yeah. But unfortunately, some journalists, well, never mind, let's not go into that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to say about the current situation, before we move on to the sort of general situation, is the current situation, from my observation, is really highlighting how, how many organizations simply had no crisis plan in place. Mm. It, it's become incredibly obvious that many organizations are just scrambling to put a structure in place and they should have been doing it a long time ago. Crisis management is often thought about as being what you do when the brown stuff hits the fan. Yep. But in actual fact, crisis management is also about what do you do beforehand to try and stop the brown stuff hitting the fan and planning for what you do when it does happen. And I think that a lesson that um, many of your 
listeners would um, value is saying, looking back at what's happened over the last week, the last two weeks, what would we have done differently if we'd had a decent plan? Did we have a good plan in place? What mistakes did we make? What could we have done better? And I think that it, it, sounds, it sounds a bit stupid saying you should learn this as an, uh, use this as a learning experience. But in actual fact, you should do. You should say, what haven't we done very well? You should also look at other organizations, particularly organizations in your own industry, and say, what have they done? And the purpose is not to say, they did that terribly, ha, 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 I'm so smart I wouldn't have made that mistake. That's not the purpose at all. The purpose is to say, what have they done well? Would we have done the same? Or what have they done not so well? What can you learn from that to avoid that? And so you should be looking at organizations, not just in your own industry, but generally and saying, they did that well and they did that not so well. We must make sure we don't do that. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it strikes me that there's there's two parts to this. There's understanding that you need to have a plan and, and what can we do better and what can we do differently because there's going to be plenty of opportunities, I would suggest, over the next few months to enact most of those plans, even the revised ones anyway. But there's also, when it comes to having a plan, I'm assuming there's not just a plan. There needs to be variations on the plan because as you, you know, to use your analogy of the... The, the brown stuff hitting the fan, you know, there's there's three ways you can try and deal with it. You can try and stop, or two at least, you can try and stop it or you can just buy a raincoat and then deal with the fallout. Um, so I imagine you need different plans for these things. You, I, I guess that's true. But broadly speaking, I'm a great believer in keeping the plan really, really simple. Yep. Like an all an all purpose plan. Um, some organisations will say, uh, "Let's develop a crisis plan for each of the following scenarios," and the thing finishes up being a huge three ring binder that nobody ever looks at. Yeah. To me, that's just a complete waste of time, especially for smaller companies. But you should have a, if you like, if I can call it an all purpose plan that says, "What would we do if we had a crisis?" Um, almost irrespective of the nature of that crisis. And, and one thing I recommend to organizations is to look for what I call their natural crises. Now, natural crises doesn't mean earthquakes and bushfires and, um, and typhoons. Natural crises means what are the crises that are natural to your business or your area of business or your particular company? And my experience has been that when I talk to managers and companies and ask them that question, they know very quickly and very easily what their natural crises are. In other words, their most likely crises. I don't have to tell them. As soon mm. as I say that, they look at each other and nod and say, oh, yeah, there's this and this. Oh, there's that. They, they know it. And so you, you need to treat your, your managers or, in my case, clients uh, with, with respect and say, you know an awful lot more about your business than I do. And I have found that if you get them together, get the management group together and say, what are your most likely crises? Uh, they usually just know them just off the top of their head. They know what they are. And yep. So you need to be thinking about those ones. Now, I'm not saying here, just so it's clear, John, I'm not saying here you don't have other generic crises like, you know, um, um, dishonest staff getting money or, um, or accusations of harassment or discrimination. I'm not saying you shouldn't look at those generic things because they can strike any company at any time. 
but I'm saying that if you're in the security business, what are the likely things that are, that could happen? Yep. And as I say, you you and your members know that an awful lot better than I do. They know what they are, and they can. Just, I'm sure they can just reel reel off what those are. Yeah. And my feeling is that when you have a plan, it should be a plan to say what would we do if these things, which seem pretty likely, uh, unpleasant but likely, would happen, and then you need to have a plan to deal with that. Yeah, it seems to me too that uh, part of the whole crisis communication sort of scenario largely rests on mindset as well. And I could be wrong in that, but uh, I'm sure you'll correct me if I am. But, you know, it begins with how we tend to envision the way that we find ourselves in these situations. And again, you can take that one of two ways. A crisis can happen and you can think, oh no, this is awful and do what a lot of organisations do and just try and hide for the first two news cycles in the hope that it'll go away. Or especially if you're the security manager within an organization where you've been given you know, responsibility for the crisis communication role or you run a security company where your clients might be looking to you as the lead in a crisis, you can view it as this is my time to shine. This is my time to step up and really show people why we bring value to their organization. Absolutely so. Absolutely so. And the... Um the real situation that happens in many organizations is, um, is denial. This is not really a crisis, and we can manage this. Alternatively, they say, let's, let's see if it gets worse before we do anything. Yeah. Or they say, let's wait till we've got more facts before we say something. So there are a whole lot of um, sort of um, mental processes that people go through which are designed to sort of say, let's not call this a crisis, because once I call it a crisis, it looks like I've been wrong and I've made a mistake and, um, and I'm in a negative situation. And denial is, is the worst possible thing you can do, and you see it a lot. You see it a lot, and um, we've seen it with some, some politicians in the last uh, few weeks, particularly our friends in the United States, saying this is not really a crisis, it won't really affect us, it'll go away soon, as soon as the weather warms up. Um, none of which, of course, was true. Yeah. And, um, and the worst thing you can do is, is not say, yes, this is a crisis, let's get together. The other thing, just on that subject, which I might mention, is that in the plan, you need to have a plan. It can be quite simple. My experience is that sometimes it can only be two A4 pages just saying, um, who's going to be our spokesperson? Is that spokesperson trained? Which group of people will we call together? to help us work through this? Who are our key stakeholders? Do we have a way of contacting them? Those very, very simple things. And these are not hard things to do. Uh, and I think that they are very, very basic. That we see situations where organizations, for example, don't know who's gonna speak, or they use a spokesperson who is absolutely appallingly shocking and should never have been used in the first place. And so even though it's very basic, that needs to be thought about beforehand. Yeah, well, I guess that brings us back to where we sort of began with this, which is, you know, whether you're a small, medium or large organisation, but, you know, we're, we're talking specifically about small to medium here because large organisations will often have their own plans and experts in place. Um, yeah, where does the response begin? And you say one of the things is to designate who's going to be speaking in these sorts of environments. Companies often 
in my experience, make the mistake of thinking the most senior leaders in the organisations are the ones who are going to step forward and be the voice of the company. But that's not necessarily always the best move, is it? No, it's not always. I mean, firstly, the person might not be a very good spokesperson for, for whatever reason. But the other point is that sometimes if you use the most senior person, uh, you don't have a fallback position. One of the great things of not using the most senior person is if a thing starts to go wrong, you can always you can always let the the most senior person step in to sort of fix it up if you like. Um, I'm not saying you can use the first person as a, as a full guy, but I mean that's sometimes what you need to do. And um, I remember a case a few years ago when uh, when a, a, a tall bus went under a bridge in um, in Melbourne and uh, hit the bridge and injured a whole lot of people on the top of the bus, some of them very seriously. And uh, the uh, low-level spokesperson started talking and said some things that were extremely unhelpful. And then the boss was able to step in and say, well, look, let me give you a broader view on this and sort of politely, effectively uh, correct the messages. So that's another reason why you might need to have um, somebody else. The The other thing is that in some businesses, and I guess the security business is one of them, some of the things you might be talking about are highly technical, mm. highly technical matters. And sometimes the boss um, might not have the same technical knowledge as, as the operations manager or, the, um, or some other person in the organization. And going back to what you said before about you know, having only one spokesperson, um, there's a mistake people make and they think that the only crisis you should speak with one voice. And that's often mistakenly taken to mean have only one spokesperson. And that's not the case at all. What it really means is having one message, having consistency of message, having consistency of tone. And I think that it's perfectly okay for the CEO to say to a reporter, look, uh, that's a very technical matter. Let me just uh, let me just call in my um, my operations manager, Mr. Bloggs, who is the expert on this. I'm sure he can answer that for you. That's a perfectly acceptable thing to do, particularly in a uh, technical or um, a matter where which is you know a bit beyond the general public's understanding. Yeah. And it, it seems to me too that having a, a spokesperson or people who are one step removed from that ultimate accountability of the senior manager in the organisation means that you provide yourself with some degree of protection whereby it's very easy for a press conference to go very sideways if you've got the, the managing director standing there being asked tricky questions by journalists that they can't answer. They look very foolish as opposed to uh, a press person or a crisis communications person yeah. saying, that's a great question and let me just clarify that and I'll come back to you with an answer. Yeah, the other point which you just made is that um, well, I've found that a lot of companies when they get in a crisis automatically think, we need to hold a press conference. Mm. And the answer is, no, you don't have to hold a press conference at all. There are plenty of other ways of getting your message out without a press conference. And as you said, press conferences can very, very, very easily go sideways um, and it doesn't look good. I was watching a, an interview on TV this morning with the... Um, Deputy Health Director for Australia, who was asked the question that why did you recommend why did the Health Committee recommend something on on one day, but the government didn't accept it until two or three days later, 
And he said, well, it's the government decision, and they do those things. And the reporter insisted about three times trying to create some sort of um, divergence between the two. Yeah. Fortunately, the guy, the guy concerned Handler well and said, look, that's, I'm not going to go into that because we're an advisory body. And yeah. he handled it quite well. But, it, but the reporter was determined to try and make some point, and some journalists do tend to go to press conferences with the objective of saying, look, it'll be anti-clever. So yeah. press, com- press, press conferences can go, can go really badly. But in a crisis, you don't have to have one. Sure. You don't have to have a press conference. I mean, you can speak to a small group. Or you can um, you can choose who you're speaking to. Uh, there are plenty of other ways of doing it. But yes, you know, press conferences can be desired. They can be good too if you've got a good message and good spokesperson. Yep. So we've discussed so far. A, you need to have a plan, and it needs to be prepared ahead of time, and it should be reasonably generic. B, you need to know who's going to speak and what they're going to say. Uh, but you know written communications and things like that. When it comes to deciding what to say, is there a format that people need to follow for this sort of thing? <laughs> I wish there was. I'd be rich if I could think of that. <laughs> but what I can share with you is my, my model for what you say in a crisis. And there are four simple steps. The first step is to say what's happened. Say... The situation is as follows, and that's really important because often in a crisis, people aren't sure what's happened, and so they get the wrong end of the stick. So it's really important for this person to say, step number one, this is a situation as we understand it right now. X and Y and Z has happened, and that's that's what we know right now. Now, The second step is to apologize. Now, apologize doesn't mean saying, I'm totally guilty, please aim, please aim your gun right between my eyes. Yep. Apologizing doesn't mean accepting liability. Apologizing just means you could say something like, I apologize that people have been upset by this. I apologize, I'm sorry that the public have been inconvenienced. So there are ways of apologizing without admitting liability. Mm-hmm. Even the lawyer will accept that fact. The third step is to empathize. The difference between um, sympathy and empathy, as you know, sympathy is, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you broke your leg. Empathy is, I know how you feel, I broke my leg too. Yep. And so the first step is to state the facts. The second step is to apologize. The third step is to empathize. And in your business, it might be, I can understand how you must be really frustrated by this. I am too. I can understand how uh, this is up, uh, disrupting your business. It's disrupting our business too, and we're in this together. Those sorts of messages are really important. And then the fourth and final step, which is really important, is, and this is what we're doing about it. Yep. We're taking the following steps. We're doing this. We're doing that. We've set up this committee. We're working on this um, and state what the steps are going to be. Now, my point when I talk to people about my four-step model is I always say to them, this won't get you out of trouble. This is not the this is not the all-purpose solution, but if you do those four things, it's a really strong foundation for whatever comes next. Yeah. Because so often you have people saying, "Oh, the company didn't even say they were sorry." Yeah. Which is just, you know, quite unnecessary. And so if you do those things, you know, state the facts, 
apologize, empathize, say what you're doing about it. If you do those four things, I know it sounds very simple and sort of sounds oversimplistic, but it isn't. And any good crisis communication will contain those four things. And then, of course, the fifth step, which is uh, like a uh, supplementary step, if you like, and that is to say, and you can contact me at X for more information, or I'll be talking to you again tomorrow at X o'clock, and so on. Yeah. So, uh, so people don't feel like uh, once you've done it. Now, the other problem I have found with many managers is that they put out a press statement, or they give an interview, and think that that's it. I can now go back to running my business. And of course, that's not the case at all. When you put out a press statement, of course, you then have to be prepared for the fact that you'll get calls about it, because that's why you put your contact details at the bottom. And so um, those four steps are really important, but you need to be prepared for the fact that this might continue. And of course, some crises last for ages, last for weeks. In the case of the coronavirus, we understand it's going to be literally months. Um, and so you have to be prepared to be communicating regularly. Now, most crises are over reasonably quickly, thank goodness. Yeah. But when there's a big crisis, uh, where there's going to be, for example, uh, follow-up follow uh, activity, like, for example, a coroner's inquest into a fatality or a, uh, a public inquiry into something, or you're going to be prosecuted by somebody, or you're going to be sued by your client or a customer, um, that, those sorts of activities can extend a crisis. And so uh, going back to coronavirus, and I want to make this point just before we finish here, is that you need to be thinking about what are we going to do after this is over? Yeah. And that's really, really important. I'm not just talking here about business continuity, although that's obviously important. You need to be saying, what are we going to do when this crisis, whatever it happens to be, is over? How will we communicate with our stakeholders, our staff, our customers, our suppliers? How will we show that we're back in business? So one of the things that's happening right now in the coronavirus is that you need to be showing, if, you, if you're affected by it, you need to be showing we're determined to remain strong. This is what we're doing to stay in business. This is what we're going to do for our staff. This is how we're going to manage redundancies if we have them. This is what we're doing to make sure we're financially strong. Those are the sorts of things. So in other words, you're planning for the road to recovery even though you're still in the crisis. So yeah. those, those are things that you should really, really be thinking about. And if your business is badly affected by that, you need to say, what are we going to do when this crisis, whatever it is, coronavirus or whatever, what will we do when this crisis is over? How will we, how will we um, get our business back on track? And as I say, it's not just about business continuity, which people often think about as being more, you know, um, supply chain and things like that. You need to be thinking, what do we do about our reputation long, long term? To take you back a step you, with your four-step model, um, first of all, uh, my first question is, is that same basic four-step model equally applicable to internal communications with staff as it is to external communications with clients and stakeholders? And secondly, there's probably going to be a lot of people listening to this that think 
but I have nothing to apologize for. This is a, a pandemic that <laughs> struck the public. Like, how do I how do I approach stage two of this? Yeah, yeah, that, that's um, that's a very good question, and I often get asked that question. But you understand, you're not apologizing for something you've done wrong. So if you're the head of Woolworths, you'll be saying, "I'm really sorry that some people found our shelves empty." Yep. Or you're um, so you can always find something to apologize for. And it's really important to understand that we're not talking here about admitting liability. Uh, we're talking about um, apologizing in a really broad sense. I'm sorry if this has affected your business. Yep. Um, those are the sorts of things you can say. So even though I, I, I call them an apology, you understand my point here that they're not an apology in the, in the strict sense. They're an apology saying expressing you're expressing the fact that you understand where they're at and, and how they're being affected. Yeah. So that's what the apology might be. I mean, obviously, if, it, if something truly is your fault, I'm sorry our system failed. I'm sorry we've had a, an IT uh, failure. I'm really, really sorry there was a data breach. Um, you know, then you do have something to be sorry for. And, and your business, and then the security business, um, those sorts of things might well be on the list of what I talked about as being um, natural crises. Yeah. Because you're handing a lot of very confidential confidential information, and therefore um, I don't work in a security business, but my guess is that one of the things on the natural crisis list would be a, um, a data breach or a, a loss of secure information yeah. would be on the list. And, um, and therefore you can say, we're really, really sorry that this happened. Um, there was a data breach. I can tell you that we uh, we lost that there was access to um, 350 accounts. Let me tell you exactly what they had access to. They did have access to company names and details. They did not have access to financial information. I'm just making this up. I'm going along and understand. So you yep. state exactly what the situation is, and then you say, "I'm really sorry that uh, this has been affected by uh, by this." And I can tell you, moving on to the empathy thing, you then say. Um, and our own records here, some of our own employees have had their um, records breached as well. And so we know exactly how you're feeling. But what we're doing about it is as follows, and you state the things you're going to do. And yeah. one of the things, one of the, one of the little tricks of the trade, John, is that you always say, we're going to cooperate fully with the authorities. Now, that statement, you might say is pointless because you don't have any choice. The authorities will come in and say, you're cooperating, aren't you? And say, yes, sir. But the thing is that saying up front, we are cooperating fully with the authorities, sounds very proactive, even though, in truth, you don't have any choice. You've always got to. Yeah. But it's a, it's a good thing to say because it sounds like you are being cooperative and you are being responsible. So, so uh, if you follow those four steps, as I say, you're obviously going to do a whole bunch of other stuff as well. But those yep. four steps are like the foundation. You say, if we've covered those four things, we won't be accused of not apologizing. We won't be accused of being distant and uncaring. And we also will have said what happened and what we're doing about it. 
Yeah, and I imagine in the case of a situation like the one we're experiencing right now, it might even be something as simple as we apologise for any inconvenience or uh, we apologise for any um, concern that may have been caused by the current pandemic. However, this is what we... And we understand, you know, that people need reassurance in these times and all the rest of it, and this is what we're doing about it now. Yeah, that's very important. I mean, you've got to be careful to avoid saying things like, we're sorry for any inconvenience this has caused because when yep. people say that, you automatically your, your yeah. tackles. Oh, don't say that because yep. we know it's inconvenient. Yeah, but um, it's got to sound obviously it's got to sound genuine. That that should go without saying. Yeah, but if you're specific about it, we're saying we're really sorry this is this has caused a disruption to your business. Is a much better message than saying we're sorry for any inconvenience this has caused, as if to say inconvenience is not important and it's, who cares. Yeah. Whereas uh, what might be an inconvenience to you yep. might be a life and death situation for your client. Or, you know, I mean, we've got this situation right now in the coronavirus. We've got some companies saying, yeah, we're going to get through this, and other small companies saying, we might not actually survive. Yeah. So yeah. It's not just inconvenience. It's, um, you know, I've already seen the government talking about that they expect there's going to be an increase in bankruptcy. Yeah. Which is Which pretty is... scary, but probably likely and i should point out at this point in time this is an azeal podcast and if anyone is a member of azeal and they're feeling like they may be in trouble or you know experiencing significant difficulty moving forward with their business please contact azeal because they have industrial relations staff who can help you they have other people and experts on the team that can provide assistance and and all sorts of other measures available to them now tony in closing you have a book, Crisis Proofing, How to Save Your Company from Disaster. How can people find your book? Um, they can buy it directly from... Um, I have the Oxford website University here Press. as Oxford University Press, oup.com.au. Or they can go on Amazon and any, um, any bookseller will, um, will have that book because it's... Um, it's written specifically as a sort of a like me talking directly to people. It's not a it's not a textbook. It's just saying, hey, this is what I'd do if I was doing these things. And so, quite a lot of what I've talked about um, is spelled out in that book. And it, it's designed to be very practical, both for large organisations and also for small ones. Great. And if people want to contact you directly, what's the best way? Or sign up to your newsletter? They could sign up to my newsletter, or they go to my website, which is dub 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 issueoutcomes.com.au and um, or just send my email addresses on that website. Fantastic. I, uh, I, I work, um, my computer's operating all the time, much to my wife's disgust, <laughs> and so I, so I tend to respond pretty quickly. Is that how you developed your four-step plan? Honey, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I understand how you feel, but here's what I'm yes, going to do about yes, it. Yes, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear. <laughs> yes, 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 sorry, yes. So there's, like, a, sorry, there's a thing, there's, a, there's an American expert who's on, on apologies, and he talks about one thing called, he calls it the marital apology, <laughs> which is the apology where you don't actually mean it, but you apologize because it's the only way to save your marriage. So you say, yes, you're right, dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole different podcast that we could get into. Oh, fantastic. Look, Tony, thank you very much for that. So I guess the main things to come out of this for those people listening, uh, make sure that you have a plan. And if you didn't, get one now. Have a look at what the other organizations around you are doing and see what from that you could maybe take and, and, and adopt or adapt to what you're doing. Uh, you know, follow those four steps of explain what's happened, 
express the uh, the apology for whatever it may be, provide empathy, saying that you understand the situation and then outline what you're going to be doing about it moving forward. Choose the spokesperson or spokespeople within your organisation. Make sure that they're adequately, adequately trained and that they understand how and what to say. Communicate with your staff. Do not forget to communicate with your staff. They're just as important as anyone else. And if nothing else, this is your time to shine. Stand up and show people why they're paying you money to do what you do. Tony, thank I you. I couldn't summarise it better. And Tony, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great chat. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you want more podcasts like this one, feel free to visit Google, iTunes, uh, Spotify, and all the other great places that you find the ASIAL podcast. There's a lot more in the series, and we look forward to talking to you again next time. 